What's up everyone, Lisa Fields here, and I'm so excited about our new curriculum, Courageous Conversations. You heard about our popular conference, Courageous Conversations, where we invite the leading pastors, thought leaders, and scholars from conservative and progressive backgrounds for conversations. But we not only want to have those conversations on stage at the conference, but we want you to have them in your everyday life. So we developed a curriculum for you to do just that. Courageous Conversations curriculum, the tools you need for the conversations and culture. You can get that today on Amazon or on our website at ju3project.org. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And again, I'm not in my studio uh, today. I traveled this morning and I was too tired to get to the studio. Uh, So I was like, I'll do it from from my home office. So uh, without further ado, I'm excited for our our guest who's been on here before. This is her second time on the podcast, um, Dr. Kymen Imes. Welcome, Dr. Imes. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Good to be with you again. Good to have you. We're continuing our Can We Trust the Bible series. And today we're going to be talking to you about can women trust the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, But before we get into that, uh, just tell our audience a little bit about who you are. Sure. I am Associate Professor of Old Testament at Biola University, part of Talbot School of Theology. And I've been here for two years, coming up on two years now. And before that, I was Professor of Old Testament at Prairie College in Three Hills, Alberta. I think probably that's where I was last time we talked. So I am I'm excited about this topic. Um, I feel like I've been through a lot of years of schooling on how to study the Bible And it wasn't until more recently that I was asked to read the Bible as a woman Mm -hmm. and that I was asked to consider what is the Bible good for women? And that's a question that students are asking me more and more because they come across passages in the Bible that seem objectionable and seem like I don't why would I want to follow a God or 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 be part of a, um, a faith that views women in this way? So it's something that I've been thinking about a lot more lately. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I'm so glad to dive into this topic because this is a challenge for so many people, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And so we've done, why should black people trust the Bible? Why should LGBTQIA people trust the Bible? And I think it's important to add, why should women trust the Bible? Um, Mm -hmm. Dr. Imes, just as far as a broad stroke uh, question starting this, Mm -hmm. why should women trust the Bible? Mm Yeah, because the Bible is the word of God and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. And I really believe that. And if we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, then it it, then it has to be for all people, not just for men, but for women as well. I think one barrier that stands between between women and and the Bible often is the way that the Bible has been used to subjugate women or oppress women or keep us silent. And so I think I think what we need to first do is separate the Bible from the ways that the Bible's been misused mm-hmm. to mistreat others. Um, that's one of the f- first things I would say is try to separate. Yes, the Bible has been misused in a lot of ways throughout history, um, but that doesn't make the Bible itself bad. That makes the interpretations and uses of the Bible um, problematic. Mm-hmm. No, that's ex- extremely helpful. When we think about some of the verses as Phyllis Triple talks about texts of terror, mm-hmm. um, one of the verses in particular stands out, Jephthah and his daughter, mm-hmm. uh, and the Levite and the concubine. Yeah, yeah. What? How can we make sense of those passages mm-hmm. and how it impacts the trustworthiness of the Bible in this impact for, for women? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that in particular, because the book of Judges is is one of those places that women really struggle. And that raises another whole question. So I framed it first as separating ourselves from the misuse of scripture. But what about when the Bible itself is describing the violence towards women or Mm -hmm. the subjugation of women or or not believing women? 
Um, and that's where we need to separate between what it's reporting and what it's advocating for. And so the Bible is telling us the Bible tells us lots of things that happened in ancient times. Not most of those things are not models for us to follow. Most of the time when we're watching somebody uh, somebody's life and the decisions they make, we're not supposed to go thou and do likewise. We're supposed mm-hmm. to listen to see, okay, how how does this work with God's commands, God's instructions? Um, what is the fruit of this behavior? And so with the examples that you brought up from the book of Judges, um, we, Judges puts us right in one of the scrappiest awfulest times of Israel's history. It's a time when there's no king leading them and there's no kind of centralized leadership that is remaining faithful to God's word and God's commands. People are just picking their own path and those paths that they pick, like in our generation too, um, often lead to destruction. So the story of Jephthah, although Jephthah is is a judge in the book, he's not appointed by God uh, to, to do you know, anything and everything he does is not God appointed. So the the book of Judges really is giving us a snapshot of how morally depraved the nation ha- has become. So Jephthah wants to win a battle. He says uh, he makes a bar- he tries to make a bargain with God, which should tell us he doesn't know Yahweh very well because mm-hmm. he's trying to bargain where uh, he doesn't understand the way faith is supposed to be lived out. So he tries mm-hmm. to bargain with God. Hey, God, if you let me win this battle, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house mm-hmm. when I return. And he goes off and he. He wins the battle and when he comes back the first thing out the door is his daughter so I don't know if he was expecting that it was going to be like a goat or something <laughs> like like that he could then sacrifice an animal but it's his daughter who comes out to meet him and then he uh then he's distraught because he made a promise he made a vow and he feels the need to fulfill that vow so this again is not being held up as an example of of good faith but as a picture, a snapshot of how morally depraved the people had become. They don't know God. They have lost their way. They are just making it up as they go along. And when we come to the end of the book, you mentioned the, the story of the concubine. Chapters 19 to 21 are a horrific story of sexual violence. And again, it's here to show us what happens when we lose our way, when we mm-hmm. don't have the boundaries that God sets up in place. And if, and I think a lot of times people start with chapter 19 and try to make sense of how women are being treated. But if we go back just a couple chapters, beginning with chapter 17, 17 and 18 tell us the story of this guy named Micah. And he and his kind of exploits, he hires his own personal priest to work in his house. And it, like every line of the story, you, if you are familiar with the Torah, if you've read the Bible up to this point and you know what God expects, every line is like, you did what? You, what are you thinking? It's just a shocking, shocking text because again and again, they are making things up. So he hires this guy to be his own personal priest, sets up idols in his house. And then he says, now Yahweh will bless me. Like, really? He hasn't even heard the Ten Commandments, it seems like. He doesn't realize idols are off the table. This is mm-hmm. not This is not appropriate. So that, I think, sets us up to understand chapters 19 and following as a story of what happens when we've completely lost our way. Mm -hmm. And so the sexual violence uh, that uh, that happens in that chapter is is there to shock us so that we can see this is how bad it gets when you ignore God, when you set aside his instructions and you make things up, make, make up your own path. So I think actually as hard as it is to read, the ending of Judges is really good news for women because it's designed to shock us into paying attention to what God requires and by showing us what happens when we don't. And, and it, so then the, the reverse of it or the, the flip side of it is, is that God actually doesn't want women to be treated this way. And this is this, the sort of like the negative, the photographic negative of, of how he wants us to be. Mm-hmm. No, that's extremely helpful because it's, it's showing uh, really a mirror as of our culture today, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. doing what's right in our own eyes and trying to infuse God where he where he may fit or where we allow him to quote unquote fit in our lives. Yeah. And totally. so 
totally. uh, Jephthah, his daughter, he's like, he he's trying to honor God in his own way. He never asked God, what mm-hmm. would you want me to do? He exactly. decides what God wants him to, what he thinks God wants him to do. And exactly. so, yeah. Um, that is something that we see people doing in our culture today, yeah. um, trying to have a, a relationship with God on their own terms. Yep. And yep. Th- that is what kind of judges seems to be communicating what yep. it looks like when you try to dictate what a relationship with God yeah. looks like yeah. instead of letting God dictate what the relationship should look like. That's really well put. And, and really, the book of Judges, we, we have basically one example of a really solid judge mm-hmm. in the book one one who has no, nothing bad about her and it's a woman um, <laughs> we have Deb, Deborah who is both a judge and a prophet she announces the word of God to the people of God she um, assists in a military victory uh, it, it's she's a remarkable woman and she comes toward a, sort of at the at the beginning of the book and then we can see things kind of spiral down downward after her leadership but I would say the book of Judges is great for women because because it shows us not only uh, here's the here's how women are harmed when we don't follow God's will, but look at how women can lead when they're empowered by God. Mm-hmm. No, that's super, super, super helpful. One of the other challenges that women wrestle with as it relates to is the Bible, uh, something that we should trust as women is thinking mm-hmm. about the Levitical law. And some mm. of the passages as it relates to a, a slavery and women. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk a little bit about the impact of that on on how we, how we interpret it based, mm-hmm. but how it maybe have intent been intended? So the impact yes. on us reading yeah. it yeah. from years, thousands of years later versus the intent yeah. during that day. Yes, absolutely. So I think there's two different paths we could go down, and I'd love to touch on both of them. One is to talk about the slavery laws and how they impact women. But the other is is all of the laws about ritual purity that that disproportionately impact women because mm-hmm. of things like menstruation and childbirth that, that render a woman unclean. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the very first thing to say is that reading the Bible is a cross-cultural experience. We're going back in time. We're going to another language, another social context, another set of values. Mm -hmm. And so it is God's word and it is useful for us. But we have to do the work of reading it in its own context, not imagining that it's speaking in a void just to us to address our questions. Mm -hmm. So so that's maybe the first hurdle. And the book of Leviticus has a lot to do with Israel's ritual purity with Israel's rituals in the tabernacle. So after they leave Egypt, when they get to Sinai, they they build at God's request a special tent that is going to house his holy presence. And it's really cool that God wants to move into the neighborhood. He doesn't stay at Sinai and and say, hey, anytime you want to talk to me, I'll have to come back here. He says, no, I want to go with you into the promised land, the land I promised to Abraham. So he he asked them to build this tent. But having a holy God in the neighborhood means that they have to think carefully about how they live. They can't just waltz around and do what they've done before. They have to be mindful that there's this incredible power and especially the holiness of God in their midst. I like how the Bible project explains it on the analogy of the sun. The sun is really good. It's life giving. It gives us light and warmth. But if you get too close to the sun, you burn up Mm -hmm. and God's holiness is similar. It is good and it's pure and it's life giving. But if you're in an impure state and you get too close, it's dangerous. Mm. And so some of the so we don't have to think about ritual purity anymore in the same way because we don't have a tabernacle or temple that houses the presence of God like that. Mm -hmm. There's a transition in the New Testament. But in the time when Israel first gets these laws, they're living in the wilderness. God's in this tent in their in their midst. And they have to know when is it okay to enter through the courtyard and be near this tent, and when should I stay away? And so there's a lot of laws um, that dictate, you know, when are you clean and when are you not to be able Mm -hmm. to come into God's presence. And so what's fascinating is if you make a list of like every potential bodily fluid that you can imagine, like Mm -hmm. not just menstrual blood, but 
but vomit and snot and tears and regular blood. Like if I cut my arm and start bleeding, like if you just take all of the things that can come out of your body and put them on a list and then compare that to which things make me ritual, which ritually unclean, you discover that it's actually a pretty short list. Like a runny nose does not disqualify you from coming into the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. But but being on your period does. And the reason is best best as I can understand it. The reason is uh, for for the particular fluids that are problematic are that they are related to life, like the production of life, the creation of life. So there's like this uh, special potency to blood, menstrual blood and semen and um, any, any anything else that's related to that. So if a if a husband and wife. Uh, have sexual intercourse, they have to wait 24 hours before they can come into the tabernacle and they have to wash themselves first. So it's not because it was wrong for them to have sex. They're married. This is a good thing. It's not wrong for a woman to have a period. It's That's natural. God designed it that way. This is right. Um, or if she's just given birth, it's not bad that she's still bleeding. That's how God designed us to work. But because of the potency of that life and the, the vulnerability, the perceived vulnerability of the um, emitting those fluids, God says, take some time apart and wash before you come. So, so that is so uh, countercultural to us. Like mm-hmm. th- this is not how we think about purity. Um, we automatically, if I say the word purity, you're, you're thinking about moral purity. Like, did you sin? And these things are not sinful. What's sinful it, as, is coming into the presence of God without going through the proper procedures. So sometimes Leviticus is seen to be uh, negative towards women because of how many things can disqualify them. Like the amount of time when they're not able to come in might be more than the amount of time that a man can't come in because of having periods and having babies. Um, but I think it's actually out of a deep sense of respect for a woman's role in producing life. And mm. and honestly, I think, too, it's a it's a way of recognizing the the vulnerability of a new mom. Like right after you've given birth for 40 days, you can't come into the tabernacle, which means if there's a, a festival going on that you have to travel a long distance to come to the tabernacle to celebrate in the festival, you're excused if you've just had a baby. Because you've got this infant to care for and you're nursing and you're still healing. Your body is still healing. So I think there's there's also a built in sense of um, just hu- humanitarian impulse that would protect women. So that's the that's the ritual purity side of, of the laws that you asked about. The other side is the slavery laws or other laws that seem like women are being treated as property or maybe that they're less valuable. So I think the best example of that is Exodus chapter 21. The first 11 verses lay out the laws for, um, and depending on what Bible you're reading, it might have a heading about slavery. And I would just say, first of all, that I don't think slavery is a good way of translating the Hebrew concept behind this section because um, it was absolutely prohibited for people to buy and sell, like to, to human trafficking was prohibited for the Israelites. They were not allowed to steal people and sell them into slavery. What was allowed is if someone was in a situation of financial duress where they couldn't pay their debts, say, say they're in debt and they, they lose their whole crop so they can't pay off their debt. There's a way out of their impoverishment by agreeing to be an indentured servant for another farmer. So if you can't uh, make a living on your own land to pay off your debts, you can you can go to someone and make a you can enter into an agreement to work for them. And so Exodus 21 is putting parameters around that situation. It's not encouraging these kind of contracts, it's just recognizing that in the world that we live in, sometimes poverty happens, sometimes debt happens. And so here's how to make sure that someone does not get exploited or starve to death in the midst of their uh, their time of difficulty. So Exodus 21, 2 says, if you buy a Hebrew servant, and again, I would say this is not, he's not buying it. It's a, it's a financial transaction 
that involves paying off a debt in exchange for labor. So if you contract or hire a Hebrew servant, might be a better way of putting it, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. So there's a time limit on how long you can be an indentured servant. doesn't matter how big your debt is, six years and you're, you get a clean slate and you get to go home. What's troubling is when we get down to verse 7, it reads, If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. This sounds really troubling. Why would a woman not be allowed to go free if a man is allowed to go free? So I... Lisa, I wrestled with this text for weeks. Mm-hmm. I, I studied it. I thought, okay, what are the conditions that are leading to this situation? Why is this language being used? What kind of a man would sell his daughter as a slave? So mm-hmm. if we then work back to the comment I already made, that's, it's, this isn't slavery. This is indentured servitude. And the buying that happens with the man is more like hiring then we can understand the man is hiring his daughter out as a servant. Part of what's difficult for us to kind of wrap our minds around is that in Old Testament times, the father was responsible for his daughter, for his unmarried daughters, and he was responsible to find a good marriage partner for her. It wasn't just like, you know, you go marry the first person you fall in love with. Like your dad was responsible for arranging a marriage for you. So this seems to be a situation in which the father is unable to arrange a, a um, like a socially equal marriage, a marriage between equals. Normally in, in a situation like that, the father would give money to the groom and the groom would give money back to the bride's family. There'd be an exchange of wealth. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even know it could cancel each other out, could be the same amount of money but or the same amount of, of stuff. But the idea is that these these two families are now bonded to each other. They've invested in each other's success. So what's different here is that the man is is bringing his daughter to another household and he receives the bride price, but he's not bringing a dowry along with his daughter because he's impoverished. He, he can't afford a dowry. So this is a situation in which there's a marriage being arranged, but it's not between social equals. So there's not an equal exchange of wealth. The reason that she's not allowed to go free is because she's not just washing the dishes in this new household. She's married either to the the head of the household or to one of his sons. And so it's very clear from the from the paragraph that 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 marriage is involved. So if he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing and marital rights, etc. Like she's not just doing chores. She's married into the family. So you can't set her free after six years because that would turn her into like a, a sex worker. Like you just took her and used her for six years and now you're throwing her out and who's going to want to marry her? It, it's not like that. It's um, it's setting up boundaries so that if a woman enters another household by marriage, that bond is to be permanent. She's not to be set out on the street or sold in, into uh, slavery in another setting. So the more I sat and wrestled with it, the more I could see how it was good for women that there were actually boundaries being set up to protect the vulnerability of this young woman. And that's why it doesn't uh, it doesn't seem fair at first, but that's because the, it, it's not same same. This this male servant is not being married into the family. He's just he's just plowing and reaping and, you know, whatever, taking care of the livestock. Yeah, that's that's super helpful. And I think it's important uh, to realize that the laws are set up not as these are ideal ways to live, but because we are humans, these circumstances will happen. So when these circumstances happen, this is how you go forward. Just like similar today. We think about there's laws on the books for how to respond to murderers and rapists. Yeah. The law is not condoning murder or rape, but they know because we live in a fallen world that murder and rape and all of these heinous crimes will happen. It's not yes. just saying we're endorsing these things. Exactly. But because we know that these things will happen because of how humanity is, we have to have laws that help us respond when these cases happen. And so, yep. like you beautifully articulated if this case happens with a woman it's not saying this is God's design for women uh, 
in every no. case. It's just no. if this situation happens, this is how we respond yeah. uh, as the people of God, which I think yeah. helps us reframe it because we look yep. at the laws as endorsements and not mm-hmm. as responses to human behavior. Right. Um, yeah. If we want the ideal, if we want God's ideal for humanity, we've got to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. Um, the laws aren't giving us the ideal. They're helping, as you said, sort of mitigate the negative effects of a fallen world and a world in which things happen, you know, crops fail and people fall into debt and can't pay their debts. So here's how here's a path out of poverty for someone who can't pay their debts. Mm hmm. No, that's super helpful. One of the questions I've heard a lot is God's response to Miriam and Aaron. Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) So Miriam and Aaron have something to say about Moses' wife. And in response, God strikes Miriam with leprosy, but Aaron gets to get off, quote unquote, scot-free. And so (laughs) it looks like God has a preference for men and uh, not so much a preference for women or he's harder yes. on women than yes. men. How should we make sense of a passage like that as, as women? I'm so glad you asked, Lisa. I have wrestled with this one too for, for years. I, as I was teaching through the Torah, I'd get to this one and I'd just be like, oh, I don't like this. I don't like this one. What is going on? And I've, I think I've finally come across some insights that have helped make sense of it for me. So The situation is that Miriam and Aaron begin to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. So this is probably another wife. He he was married to Zipporah, the Midianite, before. Um, We don't know if they divorced, if they're still married, if she's died. Um, But at some point, he marries a Cushite wife. And they are feeling a little jealous. For some reason, uh, they're, they're feeling like like Moses is a little too big for his britches. And so they say, has Yahweh spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And Yahweh heard this. Now, it's true. Both Miriam and Aaron are called prophets in the book of Exodus, and they both declare the word of God to the people of God. They they technically pass along what Moses got from the Lord. They pass that along to the rest of the people. And so... They feel like they're getting short shrift for some reason. And so God says, let me settle this. And he he takes the three of them. He he asks, invites all three to come to the tent of meeting. And then he comes down in a pillar of cloud. And after he rebukes them, um, when the cloud lifts, this is when Miriam has a skin disease. Um, Now, what God says to them when the cloud has descended He says, when there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams, but this is not true of my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house with him. I speak face to face clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of Yahweh. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So he notice he doesn't say you're not prophets. I haven't spoken to you, but he's but he says instead, Moses is at a different level. He's got a different kind of proximity to me that then requires you to respect him, his mediatory role. Now, why does Miriam suffer from this skin disease and not Aaron? There's a couple of reasons that I think what is going on here. So first of all, um, the the a skin disease so our our bibles usually translated as leprous leprosy hadn't actually started occurring yet at this time in history but it was some kind of skin disease um and the skin disease would have rendered her unclean so skin diseases are among that category um of of bodily fluids and stuff that we talked about that makes somebody ritually impure so that you can't go into the tabernacle. Mm -hmm. And probably it's because a skin disease looks like you're already decaying as if you've died. Like your skin is already starting the decaying process. So that there's the bodily fluids that are related to life and there's the skin disease that relates to death. So Mm -hmm. life and death are powerful. So that's why you have to be careful. Now think for a moment about what would happen if the high priest of Israel had a defiling skin disease. If Aaron had had the skin disease, he is the only one who's allowed to go into the most holy place to make atonement for Israel's sin. 
if he has a skin disease, then it's not just a problem for him, but it's cutting the entire nation off of of God's uh, forgiveness. And so there's an aspect where I think um, we don't see Aaron get it because of the cost that it would be to everybody else. However, Miriam's skin disease costs Aaron quite a bit because Aaron is the one of the priestly duties is to inspect skin diseases. If you have a skin disease, you're supposed to go show yourself to the priest and the priest says, yep, you're unclean. And he sends you home and you keep coming back and showing him and he says, yep, you're unclean or well, that looks better now. But but he has absolutely no power to heal the skin disease. He's just pronouncing whether you're clean or unclean. So Miriam gets a skin disease and Aaron can do nothing about it. He turns to Moses and says, please, my Lord, I ask you not to hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Don't let her be like a stillborn, stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. He's asking Moses to heal her, which then is it's forcing him to recognize that Moses actually has healing ability which is above what Aaron himself has. So it's a way of humbling Aaron and showing that we've come to the limits of his authority and come into the realm where, where we have to depend on Moses. So I think rather than see it as only Miriam is punished, I would look at it as Miriam is punished, but that becomes the tool for, sh for shaming Aaron and showing him his proper place. So I think they actually both come out of this situation severely chastened and and this has to be resolved before the people can move on but but god never tells them you weren't prophets he just says no moses is above you you need to listen to moses and and respond to his leadership mm -hmm. no that's interesting because i think about the verse that says vengeance is mine saith the mm. lord i will repay and one of the things that i think about is sometimes when we try to get vengeance in our own way we don't know really what deeply is at the core of people's pillars or their mm. values. Mm -hmm. And so what you are articulating is very interesting because it think, makes me think of what does what does Aaron value versus what does Moses mm. value? Yeah. And when God responds and vindicates us, he hits at the values that maybe we will miss. So mm. on mm. the on the surface, it looks like, man, just give both of them. Uh, the skin disease, yeah. but God always knows about the heart of people and what will impact yeah. and humble them more. And so what yeah. you're articulating is really interesting because it's like both them, both of them are humbled, but God knows how mm -hmm. to humble both of them in very yeah. unique ways. And so yeah. on the outset, it seems unfair, but if yeah. you understand how God humbles us, God knows how to humble us the the way in which it will impact our core values. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so that's and even interesting just, to keep in mind. And even with Aaron, it's like it not just his his personal value, but like the role that he's playing in the community, his job mm -hmm. description. His job description does not include being able to to deal with this. Mm -hmm. um, he's powerless to make a difference. And you might think of the high priest as this very exalted figure because he even inspects skin disease. But we we see him come right up to the limits of what he's able to do here and it puts him in his place mm -hmm. super super helpful um as i'm going through my mind of the passages that may be difficult to read for women mm -hmm. when you think about some of the well perceived rape imagery in the prophets mm -hmm. particularly mm -hmm. ezekiel and yeah. yeah as as women are reading this these passages especially women who have had sexual abuse and assault yep. happen to yep. them in violation. Yeah. What are some tools um, for women that you would recommend when they see passages that may be triggering? Because mm -hmm. we, we know the mm -hmm. Bible is good for women, but yeah. one who has experienced people, women that may have experienced deep trauma, they may yeah. say, as I was reading the Bible, it, I felt re-traumatized. And so how yes. is it good yes. for me? Yeah. Kind of what insight so, and thoughts would you give that? Such a good question, Lisa. So I think there's maybe two ways to approach that. One is just a woman reading the Bible on her own. And then another is 
what if you're the one teaching the passage or preaching on a passage? How can you prepare women in the congregation or anyone who's experienced sexual violence? Um, how can you prepare? So maybe I'll, I'll address the second first. Um, what I try to do in my classes at Biola is if we're coming up to a traumatic passage and I plan to talk about it in class or have students read it, I just warn them ahead of time so that it doesn't, so that they're not like sitting in the coffee shop just expecting, you know, just I'm going to read a, a few random chapters of the Bible and then like get triggered with PTSD and then they feel panicked and, and feel like I'm, I'm exposed right out here in the room because I'm having this um, reaction. So mm-hmm. I let students know ahead of time. I'll say something like, Next time we meet, we're going to be reading some very difficult chapters of, say, the book of Judges or the prophets. And I just wanted you to know that they contain uh, accounts of sexual violence. And this might be triggering for some of you if you have uh, a history of sexual assault. And so I just wanted you to know what you're getting into. And I, what I do in my classes is I, if there's going to be a day like that, I give students permission to join class on Zoom rather than live um, so that they can be in the safety of their own dorm room and have their camera off. And then like if they if they react, nobody's seeing them reacting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I had a lot of students take me up on that uh, last week when I was teaching through judges. I probably had 25 out of 100 who chose to, to zoom in rather than come into class for that difficult text. And I encourage them, you know, stay with me to the end. We have good news at the end of this. Like the Bible is, I believe the Bible is good for women, but we, we're going to slow down and read this text because it's part of the word of God and it's going to help us to see God's heart in this situation. So, so if you're teaching or preaching on a text, I would warn people ahead of time and I would let them know that like, give them an out, have them let, let people know if you just need a breath of fresh air in the middle of this message, you are just welcome to get up and go outside and reset. If, if you need to do that, just recognizing the effects, the, the involuntary effects of trauma on the body, I think is important. But for someone who's just going to sit down and read the biblical text and then comes across a difficult passage, I would say my advice is to hang on to the idea, the fact that the Bible is the word of God and that it is useful, that and that the character of God that's revealed in, say, Exodus 34, when God appears to Moses at Sinai and says, Yahweh, Yahweh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, who does not leave the guilty unpunished. I keep coming back to that in my mind. When I come to a difficult passage like Ezekiel 16, I say, okay, what I'm about to read is com- is compatible with this declaration of God's character, because I believe that the character of God is unchanging. So I'm going to need to wrestle with this passage until it blesses me, as as Esau McCulley would say. Mm-hmm. I, he, I heard him say, I don't know if it was on a Jude 3 podcast or where he, I heard him say that, but um, that, that we treat the biblical text like Jacob treats the angel who he wrestles with all night long and says, I won't let you go until you bless me. So there's got to be a blessing here. And in order to get to it, we need to consider the historical context, the literary context, and the theological context. All three of those dimensions can have something to offer us. Um, the historical context is like what we did with Exodus 21 and the slavery laws. Okay, what are the social circumstances that would lead to this happening? Um, the literary context would be looking at what comes before and what comes after. What's the purpose of this book? How is it being framed? Who's being addressed? And then the theological context is asking, how does this fit in with the overall story of, of God's self-revelation in scripture and his desire to save us? So in the case of Ezekiel 16, it's a, it's, there, there is sexual violence in this chapter. And what's difficult about it is that some of it is, um, some of it, God is behind it. But we have to understand that this didn't actually happen. This is not this is not like a, a historical account. It's a parable. And the parable is picturing Jerusalem as an adulterous woman, an adulterous wife, um, picturing the relationship between God and Israel as a marriage and Israel's um, failure to worship only Yahweh, her going into worship other gods instead is likened to adultery. 
And so the story is about how God woos Israel in the beginning and marries her, marries her, that is enters into a covenant. And then, and then what her unfaithfulness meant and then what God did as a result. Now he does not himself, um, assault her in chapter 16, but he says, since you seem to want to be with all of these other men, i.e. worship all these other gods, um, I'm going to just give you over to that and give you what you asked for. And so the violence that happens to her um, is the is like God giving her what she chose. So it's I think it's helpful to it's helpful to me to recognize this is a metaphor. This is not saying this is what God wants for women but saying this is what happens when we don't worship God, male, male or female, when we're not faithful to worship God and we go after other gods, we, we unseat God from the throne of our lives and we put something else on the throne. That's the equivalent of this kind of adultery. And the end result of that is not pretty because then God gives us over to what we want. And, and it's, it's self-destructive. So again, it could be triggering to read it if you've been a victim of sexual violence. Um, one suggestion that I've heard people give is there are, there are now some audio Bibles that are voiced by women. And so for some women, especially if, um, if, they, if their abuser was a man who was part of the church, like a pastor or a um, Sunday school teacher or youth leader, um, it can be really triggering to hear a man read scripture because it just puts them back in that position of feeling powerless. But there's some great um, audio Bibles now voiced by women that might bypass the sort of un involuntary reaction to a male voice. No, that's super, super helpful. As you were saying that, that sometimes God's greatest punishment for us is giving us what we want. It mm. made me think of Romans 1, where he yeah, gives us yep. over to to yourself. And so it's just, um, just interesting how the Bible always connects in ways we don't even at first see it connecting. Yes. Um, yeah. Are there any other verses that you want to address. Some of the reasons I left out some of the New Testament ones is because we've had a problematic passage. Uh, okay. Uh, earlier episodes that really honed in on. Okay. The, the Esau did a lot around women preaching and all of that. Okay, and so good, for good. those who I, I wanted to dig deeper specifically in the Old Testament and Joe has, mm -hmm. Joe Van Taylor mm -hmm. has done some Old Testament's stuff for us too but I think today we really covered what they didn't get a chance to cover as far yeah, as Miriam good. and good. so uh, but yeah. th is there any other one or any other thing that you mm -hmm. want to speak to that we haven't addressed that you would think would be helpful as women that are listening are thinking through this question yeah. should women trust the Bible yeah I, I think um, you know so I won't I won't recover the ground that Esau's already covered for you with New Testament passages but I just will say briefly that in the question of what can women do in the church, we so often beeline to Paul and there's these two verses in Paul that seem to be saying that women need to be silent. And we read those without reading all of Paul, without re reading in context of what are all the things he's doing and saying about women. And, and I think like, why do we start with Paul? Why don't we start with Genesis? And so um, I have a book coming out this summer on the image of God, and I spend quite a bit of time in these early chapters of Genesis. And I've been really struck by how in Genesis 1, both men and women are made as God's image. There's no sense of hierarchy in chapter 1. There's a sense of um, equal dignity and worth and partnership in the work that God gives them to do in the garden. And so... Um, so I would I would start there to have a conversation about what can women do. And sometimes people then go straight to chapter two, verse 18, where it says it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him and say, see, look, women are supposed to help men. They come underneath men's leadership. And so for that, I would just say it's fascinating if you actually look up all of the the occurrences of that Hebrew word, which is azer in the Old Testament, it occurs as a noun and a verb about a hundred times collectively. And half of those occurrences refer to God as Israel's helper, Israel's azer. 
And the other half refer to military allies. If you're in battle and you're in big trouble because you're losing your battle, you need an Azer. You need another military unit to come alongside you and fight beside you. And so not a single time anywhere in the Bible is the word Azer used to describe what a servant does for a master or what an employee does for their boss. It's always a sense of um, like, let's work on this together. And so... So I would say from the very beginning, there's a sense of partnership between men and women. And we have so many beautiful examples of women stepping into their destiny in the Old Testament. Um, We have the women of the Exodus in the early, the first two chapters of Exodus, um, women who are defying Pharaoh and undermining his authority uh, by saving Moses. And the verbs that are used to describe what they do to rescue him are the same verbs used to describe what Yahweh does a couple of chapters later when he says he plans to rescue Israel. And so women are being held up as kind of a mirror image of God in the book of Exodus, which I think is so cool. And we've already mentioned Deborah. We've already mentioned Miriam. Um, Huldah is one of my favorites in the Old Testament. She is a prophetess in the time of Josiah. They they find the Torah in the temple as they're doing a spring cleaning and they're like, Oh no, what is this? We haven't read it. Like, what does it say? What do we need to do? And so they bring it. This is so fascinating to me because it's during the, the time of Jeremiah, there is a male prophet in town, but they don't go to Jeremiah. They go to Huldah. She's not single. She's married. So you can't even argue like there was no man to to talk. So they defaulted to a woman, a woman. It's a married woman living in a time when there are other male prophets and and yet they come to her and she declares the word of God to them and speaks on God's behalf and calls them to repentance and calls them to reform. And this institutes an amazing uh, reformation, a breaking down of idols and restoring the proper worship of Yahweh. So I think we, when we just run to the couple of verses in the New Testament that seem to say women should be silent, we miss a whole lot of richness of women leading, women participating in the work of God in their various spheres of influence. That's so amazing and so helpful. Tell our audience a little bit about the book you have coming out um, and where they could get it. Sure. And when it's available. Yeah. um, I have a... I have a picture of it here. So it's called Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters. And it's coming out on June 6th, uh, 2023. And it's a If you're familiar with my work, if you're listening to this, you might say, oh, that sounds kind of familiar. Um, My first book is is um, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. So this is a companion volume to that. Um, But but you can read either one. They they don't um, require each other. And this one traces through the whole Bible this theme of what does it mean to be human? What does the Bible say to us about being human? So I start in the Garden of Eden. I trace all the way through to the new creation. And I look at um, our embodiment, our participation in the work of God in the world, our human vocation. It's a lot of fun. Awesome. What books have been helpful that you would recommend for our audience as you think about women in the Bible? Mm. One book that's been really challenging to me is Wilda Gaffney's Womanist Midrash. Uh, she is um, she sits further left than me in terms of uh, approach to scripture. But I've learned a lot from her, the way she interrogates the text and the way she sees women, finds women in places where I missed them. Um, and she's really given me a lot to lot to think about and chew on. Um, one book that I read last year that was super helpful is Cynthia Westfall's Paul and Gender. So we didn't talk much about uh, New Testament in this conversation, but it was really helpful for me to resituate Paul's statements about women in light of his entire message. Um, Just really helpful. Um, There's I have a whole shelf of books on women in the Bible and women's voices. Probably the other one I would recommend is by Kat Armas called Abuelita Faith. And she shows how women on the margins uh, have so much to offer. Like the the women who are marginalized in the Bible, their strength as it, you know, she shows how that comes through. And then she shows how we can learn from uh, marginalized women in our own day. And it's just a fantastic book. Awesome. How can people get in contact with you on social? 
I'm on Facebook and Twitter, so you can find me there, Carmen Joy Imes. And I have a YouTube channel where I release weekly videos called Torah Tuesday. They're very geeky. Um, if you if you want to uh, dig into uh, passages of the Torah, I have like a eight minute video or so every week on that. And yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. I have a blog as well, CarmenJoyImes.blogspot.com. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Imes. This has been a rich conversation. Remember, you can catch all our past episodes at Jew3Project.org. You could uh, watch on YouTube or Facebook or listen wherever you stream your favorite podcast. Remember to rate, uh, share, do all the things, uh, because I believe that this podcast will bless. If it bless you, it will bless another. Remember, you can support the Jew3 Project by giving online at Jew3Project.org backslash donate. And if you hit that donate tab, it also gives you an option to donate by mail. Remember, every gift helps equip. All our merch, our curriculum through Eyes of Color, Courageous Conversations is on our website as well. Um, And remember, here at the G3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the G3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune in to all our past episodes at www.g3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it. What's up, everybody? This is Lisa Fields, founder and president of the Jew3 Project, and this is six highlights from the Jew3 Project for 2022. Number six, the unspoken documentary in partnership with DLC Media. Number five, the Juneteenth documentary in partnership with Our Daily Bread. Number four, our Right Now Media series through Eyes of Color. Number three, our Courageous Conversations curriculum. Number two, our Courageous Conversations Conference 2022. And number one, Problematic Passages featuring Dr. Esau McCauley and Dr. Joe Vitale. We've had an incredible year. I mean, God has done some amazing things that have caused growth and we have reached millions across the globe with your help. Help us continue the mission and the vision of the Jew3 Project at Jew3Project.org. We need your help to help people reimagine faith through apologetics. Every gift helps equip and help us to expand in 2023. Grace and peace.